0: Snuff
1: Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, November 4. I'm Tom Tilly. And And that is the voice of a former high school teacher turned singer. Her name's Aviva, and because of her traction on YouTube, she's been able to sidestep the gatekeepers of the music industry.
2: Our team for YouTube is in Canada, and they collect all the streams and the data and when you collect it then you can collect the money that comes off that.
1: So in just four years Aviva has had billions of streams on YouTube and that means she's been able to build a global audience and a big business and it's a really interesting story about the way Australian artists can now find ways to have a creative career without relying on the traditional music industry decision makers.
2: I'm always very aware of the razzle dazzle. I'm not easily razzed or dazzed
1: so that's our interview with Aviva coming up in the second half of the podcast. First, Jan Fran is here for the headlines.
0: Hello, Tom. We are starting with a very good news story this morning. Our West Australian police have released footage of the moment that four-year-old Cleo Smith was rescued from a house in Carnarvon. My name's
1: Cameron. How are you? Are you okay? We're going to take you to see mummy and daddy. Okay? Is that good? So that's police officer Cameron Blaine saying, my name's Cameron, are you OK? An incredible moment where little Cleo then nods. Uh, he says, we're going to take you to see Mummy and Daddy, as you heard, and she smiles. You know, I just wanted to be absolutely sure that, um, you know, it certainly looked
0: like Cleo. Um, I wanted to be absolutely sure it was her, so I said, what's your name? And she didn't answer, and I said, what's your name? <laughs> um, she didn't answer again. So I asked her a third time, and then she looked at and looked at me, and she said, my name's Cleo. And, it was, um, and that was it. That was police officer Cameron explaining what happened there at a pretty extraordinary press conference. Um, Cleo was found early yesterday morning. Um, She vanished from a camping family trip. She'd been missing for 18 days and she was found alone. She was found locked inside a house in Brockman, which is a suburb of Carnarvon, about 900 kilometres north of Perth.
1: Yeah, police stormed the Housing Commission home before 1am Western Australian time yesterday yesterday and yeah, it's just an incredible moment, Jan. That really, really warmed the hearts people right around the country.
0: Yeah, well, I actually um, heard first heard that this happened not from a news alert but from a text a friend of mine texted in a group chat and he said they found the little girl Mm. um which you know i hadn't heard from this friend in in weeks either (laughs) so it just goes to show how connected so many people were to this story the police say they also received thousands of pieces of information from the public and worked with forensic clues to find her here's rob wild he's the detective leading the case there It was the hard work. It was the hard work of the team that did it, analysing all of that information, gathering it all, working through it and finding that needle in that haystack.
1: Yeah, so there was a $1 million reward, which is where um, some of the information came from, but apparently it's not going to go to any one person because really the hard work was done by the police who pieced um, many different pieces of information together.
0: Yeah, now we don't actually know too much um, about the occupant, of the home. He is a 36-year-old local who is living alone. Um, that's pretty much all we know. He is in police custody at the moment, um, although no charges have been laid. Now, that might develop. Of course, this is a developing story. So, depending on what time you're listening to the podcast, he may or may not have been charged.
1: Yeah. So, he wasn't on the sex offender list. They did um, speak to a lot of people who were. The line that really sticks out is is the line from Cleo's mother, Ellie Smith, who said on social media yesterday, our family is whole again. Um, which is a beautiful thing. We might hear more from the family today as well. But everyone's waiting, I guess, Jan, to to find out how police did this. What was the, the key bits of information Absolutely. that led to this? Um, but, I mean, yeah.
0: criminologists say that, you know, if if a child is kidnapped, the amount of time, the average amount of time they're likely to survive is three hours. Wow. You know, yeah. So this girl had been missing for you know, two weeks, if not more. And so hope was kind of fading. So to have this happen is a really extraordinary moment. And I think people are just going to want to know every single detail.
1: And the French ambassador has lashed out at the leak of private messages between uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, and the prime minister, Scott Morrison. This is
2: an unprecedented new law in terms of how to proceed. And also in
1: terms of truth and trust.
0: That was the French ambassador, Jean-Pierre Thibault speaking there at the National Press Club yesterday. Now, the text that he's um, referring to detailed Australia's cancellation of the $90 billion submarine deal with France, um, which has seen this ongoing and growing feud between the two countries.
1: Yeah, Scott Morrison said he wouldn't apologise for scrapping the deal, though. Claims were made and claims were refuted. What What is needed now is for us to all just get on with it.
0: The rift between France and Australia shows no signs of slowing down. It was pretty obvious um, at the recent COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. Um, Macron claimed that Scott Morrison had lied to him about the fate of the submarine deal. He was asked point blank, do you think Scott Morrison lied to you? And he said, I don't think, I know. Um, which was a, a very definitive statement. There, Scott Morrison doesn't seem to to really want to make things better.
1: Meanwhile, Scott Morrison's flown to Dubai on his way home from the Glasgow summit, and he stopped in to thank Australian troops for helping evacuate thousands of people from Kabul when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan. The great honour, as I said, to be here at Camp Bed. This was the site of our base to run what was the largest ever airlift that we've ever been involved in as a country.
0: So the base is Australia's defence hub in the region. Um, There's 4,100 Afghan evacuees um, that were taken there, cared for and processed before travelling to Australia um, during the Taliban's takeover in August. Now, the PM is on his way home from the G20 and the COP26 summits In Europe. What were sort of the takeaways from the summits, do you reckon, Tom?
1: Yeah, the biggest achievement from the Glasgow summit, which we've been waiting for for months, had been a huge build up, were the deforestation pledge. And so the aim there is to end deforestation by 2030. So Australia did sign up to that one. Um, The other big pledge made was a methane pledge to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Um, So that will have a big impact on agriculture and that's a pledge Australia didn't sign up to.
0: And actor Alec Baldwin has hit back at claims of chaos on the set of the film Rust. Baldwin is executive producer and star of the film. In the wake of the shooting, some crew members said that the set was unsafe. They said that staff were working long hours. But Baldwin um, posted something on Instagram. He posted, read this and linked to a post from a woman named Therese Magpal davis who was in the wardrobe department.
1: Yeah, so her post said, I'm so sick of this narrative. The story of us being overworked and surrounded by unsafe, chaotic conditions is bullshit. Um, she said there were regular safety meetings. Crew members were reminded of safety requirements and were happy with their working conditions. So a big contrast to what some of the other crew members were saying, some of whom um, walked off the set in protest at the conditions. All right, Jam. we'll catch you tomorrow. i going to get into an interview with Katrina Blowers with Australian YouTube star Viva. All right, this briefing is about sidestepping the normal gatekeepers of the music industry. And for someone that wanted to have a career in, in music, the well-worn path was you form a band, You try and get some shows, do some recording, try and get some radio play, which might get label interest, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which then means you can take your, your shows and your recordings to a whole new level. But because of the internet, particularly YouTube, as we're about to learn, Katrina, the game's changed.
3: It has. And I think for many creatives for the better, because I guess the downside to that well-worn path was that many people felt like they had to compromise their sound or change their image in order to please record company executives. So this new way means that people have a lot more creative control and are making just as much money even more by navigating this new space.
1: Well, yeah, it was often the people at radio stations who decided what to put to air and the bosses of these record labels that really got to decide who was successful And who wasn't? And it it does seem way more democratic now.
3: So young Aussie artist Aviva is a perfect example of someone who maybe you haven't heard of in the mainstream, but she's had her emo pop songs downloaded billions, that's right, billions with a B, of times.
1: Yeah, so we're going to hear her story. She's just put out a fictional book called Selfless, and it plays into, I guess, a, a big theme that's part of all her work about being an outsider, From the outside, you would call it emo music, essentially, and it it does sort of play to that narrative of not being accepted or not being able to express yourself, and it ties in with her real life story, which is doing things differently. Aviva, thank you so much for joining us. Take us back to the start of your whole journey. Did you consciously choose to go this direction, and did you ever dream it could be so big?
2: I never dreamt that I would get to where I'm at the way that I have, to be honest. I've always been very aspirational. I always knew what I could be and who I could be and what I can produce and have just worked to that end. And for me personally, I mean, I started in bands at the end of high school, straight in the beginning of uni, I was in these bands, but it was very clear for me from the start that the Guys in these bands weren't really interested in music and a career because it was always drinking and partying. And I don't drink or party or do any of that stuff. <laughs> I'm quite serious. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was trying to take music really seriously to build a career because I didn't want to do another job working for someone else. I wanted a creative career. And so those kinds of bands didn't work for me. And I just had to keep going until. I um, got into a rhythm and a flow. And I think that that really just comes back to knowing where you want to be. Like, I don't think that I ever had an exact point of what I wanted. I just knew that it was bigger than I could achieve by doing that back blocks, garage, build it up from the ground style. So what did you decide instead? Well, when I met Mateus, who is basically the other side of Aviva, so I am Aviva and it's my real name, but from a business perspective, I run it with Matt and we both had the same idea of this needs to be shaped in a different way. We we need to shape it like a business and art is a huge part of it. It's the engine. But at the end of the day, if you want a career, you have to take things seriously to a certain extent, and you can still have fun while taking things seriously. So I think that's something people often don't realize. And we both started writing music and seeing that the Australian scene wasn't going to work for us because... If you listen to the music that is big in Australia, it has that Australian sound really distinctly. And I appreciate that for what it is. But for me, it wasn't wasn't enough. (laughs) My music, from when we first put it online, instantly started hitting in America and in Europe, even with the older sound that we sort of initially were playing around with. So that straight away was an indicator Mm. Maybe we should be looking sort of broader horizons.
3: Talk to us about YouTube and how integral that has been in your journey and in your success. How does that all work?
2: YouTube is still, I believe, the best way for any type of artist to get their medium out to a wider international audience. So our song Girls went viral on a YouTube Tastemaker's channel. The Tastemaker was called Mr. Suicide Sheep. This person doesn't create music, they just curate music. Mm. And they've wow. built a business with, you know, millions of followers and the ability to make and break new artists, which they kind of did for us. So the song Girls went viral and reached this global audience. And the From there, it started to ping in different sub-communities. And I think that that is what makes YouTube so diverse and so interesting because there's a sub-genre called nightcore where they speed up the music and pitch it up. Mm. So then there's the opposite of that, which is decor, where they slow it down and pitch it down. And every song we were putting out was being sort of consumed by these communities. And then there are sub-communities like a community called the Gacha community and that's one of our biggest communities and it's it's interesting for me because when we were in um, the YouTube studios or YouTube HQ in LA we we sat down with our point person there and she was explaining how they can work out the ages of users even if they've lied on their on their account mm. and that our age bracket our biggest age bracket was 7 To 15, not 17, seven. Yeah, which blew our minds at first. Since we learned that, we were actually able to really identify it and and see that. And it's really interesting when you think that your age bracket's this and then you find out it's that. It's, yeah, it's quite illuminating. Our team for YouTube is in Canada and they collect all the, the streams and the data and when you collect it, then you can collect the, the money that comes off that. So it's just like a stream on, on Spotify or Apple Music or anywhere else if they're using the song to, to make their own thing. And I'm all about creativity and encouraging creativity. So it's like a double gift to me, seeing people going out themselves and being creative and then using my song to sort of help inspire their creativity. That's very fulfilling.
1: Yeah, so you built up this big following, which I guess gave you a fair bit of control and power. And you actually then started to get offers from the the traditional gatekeepers in the music industry. But you decided to say no to the big record deal where they own your material and then have a say in the creativity going forward. How hard was it to say no?
2: After the YouTube stuff sort of it sparked and it was the fire was starting to burn you know you're pinging all the labels are tracking these things and and you start pinging and they start going oh this is an interesting artist we'll reach out and we were lucky was pre-covid and back when everyone was footloose and fancy free so we were flown all around the world put up in hotels like very old school record label wooing but I'm always very aware of the razzle-dazzle. I'm not easily razzed or dazzed. Hmm. When you sign to a record deal, they own those songs in perpetuity, which means forever, even if you're not in the deal anymore, they still own the songs from the deal. And they also own you for that time that you're in the deal. So they can say, no, you cannot do this, or yes, you must do this, which I'm a pretty... Solid in who I am, person, and and that it's in itself was an unappealing thought. In the end, we had to make the decision for ourselves. And growing from zero dollars and being myself, I was literally a struggling university student. But I studied high school education because I wanted a job where I could have an income while I built up my music business. Going from there to being able to leave my job teaching because I was earning more as a musician than a teacher to now earning seven figures a year, I just knew that I would never make that with a label controlling my narrative. Unbelievable to have that insight. I guess
3: the other thing that sets you apart from other musicians is you're not just a musician, you're creating this whole world around your music. You've got a new book out called Selfless and that's part of that. Tell us a bit about the book and your vision for creating this
2: world. I'm just trying to create a really immersive experience for my fans and for People that haven't yet discovered my world, where there is a story and characters and sound, and you can dive right in as much as you want to, or just peripherally enjoy the music because it stands on its own.
1: People might simplistically say it's it's an emo narrative. It's a you know in this book in particular, Selfless. It's about a, a young girl who wants to express herself, but she lives in this kind of 1984, Handmaid's Tale kind of reality where all self-expression or art is restricted, and the women are referred to as womb carriers. Tell us about this world and and what's the key message you're trying to share with it.
2: The world of my story is essentially what I called a future Earth. This idea stemmed from my worst nightmare, which was not being able to express myself because that's how I process my experiences through song and through story. And I'm just a verbose person. Like I'm very articulate and I'm just constantly talking for better or worse for the people <laughs> around me. <laughs> but I thought, what if I couldn't do that? And and in the world, it's not just art and music, it's religion and sexuality and anything that creates a point of conflict because there is so much conflict in our world. So there are elements of the dystopian trope because it's genre fiction and Mm. that's inevitable. But this idea of punishable by death for being who you are, I mean, it's pretty scary. So that was the sort of root of my ideas for the world.
1: That was Aviva. Her book is called Selfless and you can find her on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, what I found really interesting there, Katrina, was learning more about those YouTube communities that most of her hits have come from being cross-posted on other people's yeah. channels or people kind of remixing her content, but they can still get the revenue streams from from those hits.
3: And the money that you can make just by curating other people's music. Uh, I think I might have to look into this as a bit of a side hustle, Tom.
1: Yeah, and I guess the other big thing to take out is like... You can go to a global audience. That's just the, mm. the very obvious but amazing thing about these big internet platforms. Tomorrow on The Briefing, what is the metaverse? Listener.